look yonder coming Coming down that railroad track Hey, look yonder coming you're listening to Chewing the Fat with Monica Ang and Louisa Chu, who's not here right now. And we, well, I am talking to the wonderful Maureen Abood, whose new book, Rosewater and Orange Blossoms, celebrates your Lebanese heritage. And it's called Fresh and Classic Recipes from My Lebanese Kitchen. Welcome. Thanks, Monica. Great to be here. When you were here in Chicago, food writing wasn't your day job. Tell me how you became such an expert food writer and blogger and cookbook author. When I was living in Chicago, I really did have a feeling that this is where I was headed, was to be doing food writing full-time. But I hadn't made the leap. I was kind of dipping my toe in writing and getting things published and really enjoying that and and doing a lot of the foundational work of talking with my family and other Lebanese about their dishes and their stories and tape recording it and writing it down. And I I was like, I'm not exactly sure what the end use of this is going to be, but I know I need it. Part of that point in time was that someone close to me had passed away and she was young, my brother's wife. Mm. And I thought, okay, there are things I want to do and I need to carpe diem. I need Mm. to do those things. And one of those things was to go to culinary school. I really wanted to do that. Mm. And so I did take the leap. I left my job in Chicago, and I found a wonderful school in San Francisco, and I moved out there, went to cooking school, all the while thinking, I want to write this book about Lebanese cuisine, even while I'm learning French technique. From there, I thought, well, I'm not going to go back to a full-time job because I just can't do it all. Mm -hmm. And so I moved back to Michigan. I moved into um, my parents' cottage in northern Michigan. Nobody was around in this very quiet place and sort of had the writer's dream of being in a secluded spot where I could really focus on writing and cooking and developing recipes and taking photos and launching my blog with the hope of publishing this book. So when I talk to people from the Middle East, especially Lebanese, but even people from other parts, I say, who has the best cuisine in the Middle East? And they almost all, even if they're Egyptian or sometimes Palestinian, they'll say the Lebanese. Why are the Lebanese known for the greatest cuisine in the Middle East? Oh, thank you for saying that. <laughs> that's so that's music to my ears. And and it is true that that many, many agree that the Lebanese cuisine is is extra special. I think that It's because of the style of eating as well as the flavors and the way in which we cook. The Mm. style of eating, there's the maza, which is many small plates where you can taste all these different flavors in one sitting. And then then the generosity beyond the maza would be the main dishes of grilled meats and salads and the condiments that go with them. I think that our, our ingredients, our flavors really shine. We use lots of fresh herbs. Mint in particular is mm-hmm. is a is a classic Lebanese flavoring, but we also use cilantro. Might be surprising. We use mm-hmm. cilantro and parsley and very all kinds of fresh produce and fruits. And and so so we're balancing a lot of our dishes between meats. You might know, you know, the, the shish kebabs and the mm. kibbe and the, the roasted lamb. and But then so many vegetables, stuffed vegetables, stuffed leaves, grape leaves. Mm. And 
I think one particular flavor that stands out as well is sort of this sour tart, lots of lemon. Uh, yogurt. Yes, yeah. yes, the yogurt, the condiment of, of the labni mm-hmm. on pretty much anything, mm-hmm. <laughs> any dish, it, it gives it a richness. And I think that that paired with with the black olives and the pickles, mm-hmm. all of these. So tart is really prominent. And su- sumac, too, I would imagine. The sumac is yeah. bright, citrusy, tart. Mm-hmm. These combine to, to make such a delicious table. And all of this eaten with a chewy, delicious flatbread mm. or pita bread. And you don't have to, of course, if you if you don't want to go down that gluten road, road or the carb <laughs> road, we'll use a lettuce leaf, yeah. you know, yeah. the, the romaine lettuce. And so I think these flavors really make it make it a a beloved cuisine. And and then the way it's served with a lot of generosity and love. I, I think that that's very typical Lebanese. So tell me, I know you have so many recipes and so many stories, but what are some of your favorite stories to tell that are connected with recipes in the book? I had written a piece about my father's death, actually, and the, the one of the last dishes that he ate that my mother prepared for him, which was a very classic chicken and rice pilaf, Lebanese hashwi. And in writing about that, it was a great experience for me because I was sort of working through having lost my dad a couple of years before that. And it was a really heartfelt piece and meant a lot to me. And this is really how I've approached all of my food writing um, is with the stories that go with them. I think that's so important because I always hate it when I see cookbooks and it's just, here's the recipe. Because I think that every dish does have a story. It feels like something's missing if you don't have a connection to the to the larger meaning of mm-hmm. of the recipe and that's been especially true for me growing up in a Lebanese family because we were really story oriented and and so it seems like every dish has has a story to tell and and I feel like I was born to tell those stories I especially like telling stories about my grandparents I've always had this intense curiosity about them and their lives and so that's why I'll go around talking to my aunts and uncles and anyone who knew them or was connected to them about who they were and what they what they believed, what they loved. I enjoy writing about that. And sometimes I'm I'm like wondering if what I'm writing is what happened or what I think happened or from a story someone told, but ultimately it all comes down to wanting to share it with everyone who might be able to find this as a bridge to understanding a culture mm-hmm. that isn't always represented. Um, you know, there's a lot of challenge in the Middle East. So I, I really like putting a positive message, a true and positive message. That's It's really interesting you say that. I was talking to uh, the Ziad brothers, who are an importer, you know, based in the Chicago area. And they said that, yeah, you know, obviously the the wars in the Middle East can have their negative effects, but a lot of the guys coming back have eaten the food there, and they've had a demand for Middle Eastern flavors. And I think the food can can help bridge that and help connect cultures. Yes, this idea is being discussed a lot, I think, in some of the food circles, because we're seeing an interest in Middle Eastern cuisines because of the exposure that that people across the culture, U.S. culture, from all walks, um, are having 
to the Middle East. And it's really wonderful in that respect because it's not just curiosity, but they've tasted it and loved it, and they want to have it again when they're Mm -hmm. back here. And in many areas, it's hard to find. So hopefully they'll want to make some themselves at home and realize that they really can. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the ingredients you have here are some that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily find at the local Safeway or, you know, Jewel or wherever you are. What are some of the new things that you'd love to introduce to the American public? The bulgur wheat, which is a little bit different from straight-up cracked wheat because it's par-cooked and and it's dried, but you Mm -hmm. don't have to cook it. You just soak it. You can cook it. The bulgur wheat in its different... grain grades of coarseness. And does it have different names, you know, in the different grades of coarseness? Number one, number two, <laughs> number three, number four. Number four being the most coarse. The threes and the fours, the, the, the coarser bulgur wheat, make absolutely delicious pilafs. And they're hmm. simple to make. I love to make bulgur pilaf with chicken stock or vegetable stock, or you could use water with a little bit of salt fluff it up and add maybe some sautéed vegetables, sautéed zucchini and onion. Um, this, this, is, this is very basic, delicious food. Another ingredient that I, I think is just special and unique that I love to use is a peeled chickpea. Hmm. Hummus is made with chickpeas. Hummus means chickpea. Mm-hmm. And when you use a peeled chickpea to make the hummus, it comes out very, very smooth, very light, and the flavor is even better because the skins on a chickpea kind of dampen the flavor of so the hummus. So you're saying that if you're starting with the dried beans, when you soak them and then that uh, skin starts to get loose, you take the time to take those off? You can pop the skin off, yes, after you've soaked them and cooked them or mm-hmm. from a canned chickpea. Okay. Or I have searched high and low for a chickpea that's already peeled. Oh, okay. Just to cut down that time in the kitchen for someone who who really wants that texture in the hummus, homemade hummus. Oh, it makes it smoother. Yes, and and, and that's available on my website, too, the the peeled chickpea. And the other important ingredient is the tahini. So a good quality tahini. Good quality tahini. And that's ground sesame seed paste. Yes, and and it's got the sesame um, oil Oil in there. Different from Asian sesame uh, oil, different flavor completely. And, And... you don't want that tahini to be sludgy and difficult to stir, and that that's the sign of... Like, I always it, get that, so what's wrong with it? It's old, usually. Oh, I should get fresher. Older, yeah. and, and once you get your tahini, a fresh tahini, shake the jar regularly oh, okay. so that it, it stays emulsified. The one that I love to use for, for hummus, I have imported from Lebanon and, and have made that available, but it looks emulsified and if there's any separation it's minimal and you shake that shake that jar up and the flavor is never bitter and and sometimes tahini can be a little yes, bit yes. bitter and and so these recipes have few ingredients so the quality of the ingredient is important I was just going to ask you, you know, what is the key to a great hummus versus a bad hummus? Because, yeah, I've used old tahini. I've used maybe not the greatest olive oil that I should have, or my lemons were old. But you probably want fresh, fresh, fresh. Fresh lemons that, that are juicy. Mm-hmm. And and the chickpea that has um, doesn't have the skin on yeah. it. And high-quality tahini that isn't bitter, um, that, that has been stirred up or is emulsified. And then a little bit of fresh garlic, again, because it's raw in the hummus. The garlic will sometimes have a green germ in the mm-hmm. center. Cut your garlic in half. And pull if it does, out. pull it out. Yeah. yeah. Because that that will 
will just make your hummus burn rather than shine. And and then the olive oil, which I don't include in the when you whiz the hummus. Recipe. But just it, drizzled over the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then you use a really high quality extra virgin olive oil. Drizzle that over the top and don't You're making miss me that. so hungry. Me too. Oh my gosh. Some toasted pine nuts on top. Oh, nice. You know, some, some vegetables or some flatbread and, and it's a meal. And I love to put a big dollop of hummus on top of tabbouleh salad. That was going to be my next my next question. Where do you stand on ratio of parsley to bulgur in your tabbouleh? Tabbouleh can be so misunderstood. <laughs> Sometimes I see it's all parsley and like two pieces of bulgur. Sometimes it's all bulgur and a few dots of green. Yes. Tabbouleh salad is an herb salad. Primarily, it is a parsley salad with mint and some other vegetables, tomato, cucumber, scallions. And then the bulgur wheat is just is really just flecking it. Okay. Not much. Just a little handful to a to a bowl, a a, a medium sized bowl of tabbouleh. It gives it nice texture and 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 some flavor, and it will mm-hmm. soak up some of the lemon, which is a very lemony salad. Mm-hmm. But not I too hate much. It when it's not lemony enough. You cannot put too much lemon on yeah. a tabbouleh. I think so too. It, it just keep going. Taste it and keep going. And then a high quality olive oil again. Very high quality, extra virgin olive oil. This is the time to use your finishing oil on a tabbouleh salad because even though it might take a little more than what you drizzle over something for finishing, um, it's that it's it's that few ingredients, great flavors. The dressing is is minimal. Let's go eat. Yes, exactly. <laughs> what are some surprising dishes that you think people might want to try and enjoy? I Loved discovering that there are so many different ways to make Lebanese kibbe. And that is, for those who don't know? Kibbe naya is the national dish of Lebanon, and it's it's a combination of ground lamb or beef, very lean. It's eaten raw. Naya is eaten raw. Kibbe can be made in all these different preparations, and many favor the raw preparation of kibbe. So it's combined with bulgur wheat and pureed sweet onion. And spices, and the spices can vary from family to family, region to region. But it's almost like a, you knead it like a dough, and then mm. and then you you serve it drizzled with olive oil and and eaten with the bread. But there are vegetarian kibbies that oh. are absolutely wonderful. There's a vegan tomato kibbe hmm. made in the same way, but you're using tomato and red bell pepper pureed, and and it's just refreshing and and such a, a nice alternative. And there's one with spinach and potato. So these kibbies, I think, are exciting and fun to make. And who knew? And who knew? Yeah. I'm also excited about. I love desserts, and I'm I'm a, I'm a I have a big sweet tooth, so I love the desserts chapter in the book. And the uses of the rose water and the orange blossom water here, mm-hmm. I think, are are really nice, very special. There's a shortbread recipe that you can mm-hmm. use any of the flower waters or vanilla. For those who lighter. think that the flower waters can be shampoo-y, and I know some people think that the vanilla might be a good substitute. Yes, or you may think that because too much is being used, just oh. you only need a few drops, very, very subtle, especially with rose water. Yeah. Well, Maureen Abood, author of Rosewater and Orange Blossoms, Fresh and Classic Recipes from My Lebanese Kitchen. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
I cannot wait to cook from this. I feel like I'm eating just looking at these gorgeous pictures. Thanks so much. Thank you, Monica. Thank you.